0: Accelerating careers in real estate with Nick Carman. In this episode with Mark Flessing, we we'll listen to how he started careers in three separate sectors. Now, I think when you're listening to this, you get the impression that Mark would have been successful in whatever career he chose. But for the past 16 years, he's been the chief executive of pocket living in the starter home market. I think my favourite lesson I learnt from Mark whilst recording this was the importance of purpose. He speaks very passionately about these earlier careers and demonstrating real chameleon-like talents. Yet, in his period now with Pocket, he's faced much tougher hurdles and in some ways slower growth, but he's stuck at it. And I think the reason is because he's found his purpose. And I think if you're listening to this and wanting to unlock that next stage of your career, maybe that's a really good place to start. Welcome. I'm Nick Carman, Director of recruitment company, MacDonald & Company. And what I'm looking forward to this afternoon is talking to Mark Flessing a little bit about the success he's experienced during his career, and most recently as the founder and chief executive of Pocket Living. Pocket Living are a home builder with a very unique solution to the lack of generally affordable homes in London and the South East. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about the earlier career because you're not a real estate native, are you? No, I, I, Tony Pidgey once joked with me that
1: if I'd been a real estate, pit, um, real estate native, I would never have set up Pocket uh, because I would have known too much. <laughs> um, I, think, I think you can't really disrupt something as solid as the British residential development industry if you're an insider, you you really do need to be an outsider. But we can come back to that. So my my career path was that uh, I ended up going to the LSE uh, to do my masters, uh, from where I joined Cantinat West, and I became uh, a director of corporate finance there in the nineteen eighties, doing M and A uh, and mainly in the media sectors. But because of my heritage, I'm I'm Dutch, uh, and so I spoke speak Dutch. And um, I'd also lived in Brussels for 10 years, so I spoke good French. They also made me responsible for all corporate finance transactions in the Benelux. And I did that until the end of the 80s. And then remember saying to my boss, the problem with being a merchant banker is that you have, relatively speaking, tremendous amounts of power uh, to affect mergers, acquisitions, you know, putting businesses together coming up with programmes which make people you know, redundant or add large numbers of people to the workforce. You have genuine power for short periods of time to affect corporate change, but you have no responsibility. And that, really, I was fed up being an advisor. I wanted to be a principal. I wanted to get my hands dirty. And he turned around to me and said, well, you become a principal and you'll learn that uh, you uh, will have reversed your position uh, because you'll have lots of responsibility but you'll have no power um, which is which is not not completely untrue for the life of a CEO um, I was very lucky I, I set up my own film finance business advising uh, uh, companies in the television and film industry um, uh, deregulation was going on within the television sector. Uh, the ITV franchises were being bought and sold, and out of that came these larger groupings. Uh, and I had some 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 really lovely people who introduced me around the place. Um, David Putnam was one of them. Uh, I, I remember him saying to me, you, you, "You'll never shake off the fact that you're a banker. However good you are as a as a as a TV and film executive, that you'll always be the banker. They'll know you for the money, money man that you are." And eventually, I did. A fair amount of, of uh, work within that sector and felt, well, you know, I'm always helping other people make television productions and films and I should do it myself as well. So I I, I ended up producing a bunch of films, which was a very interesting experience, uh, some of which I would really care not to be reminded of, uh, others which actually were rather good and won great prizes. None of them made any money. Uh, but I learned a lot about uh, spending very large amounts of money in a very short period of time, which is not that dissimilar to the housing industry. And uh, then was picked up by one of my clients, which was, funny enough, it was a property company called Chesterfield Properties. It uh, was uh, uh, chaired by a man called Roger Wingate, uh, listed on the stock exchange, and his family had always had a... His father had founded it, a big stake in that business. Uh, and they had built up an entertainment division over the years of theatres and cinemas. Uh, they had a stake in in film studios, some television businesses, and the job... That needed to be done was to somehow demerge all of these entertainment companies from the property company because the property company really needed to present itself on the stock market as a pure play and like most property companies in those days uh, and still today was trading at a discount to nav and so maybe there was some feeling that these entertainment assets were a poison pill and getting in the way of people being able to take over the business and that was a complete leap uh, for me. I'd never, obviously, managed an entertainment business, but I found out fairly quickly that a I enjoyed it. But b there were some really great assets within that business, um, and it was a question of leveraging it and working out how to how to make make these theatres in particular hum. And I think the key to to my eye was that they were being run for their capacity of attracting other producers with their plays. But if nobody knocked on your door, then you would go dark, and going dark was expensive because you had lots of mouths to feed in these businesses. They're they're obviously fixed-capacity businesses. So the handle that we needed to create for ourselves was how we were going to manage our own pipeline of productions in order to always be able to compete with the market on being able to bring interesting plays to the West End. And one of my great pieces of luck was the appointment of Sam Mendes in one of our theatres at Dormar Warehouse. And so between Sam and myself and various other people that really could see the point of us creating uh, a much more diverse and dynamic West End because, yeah, people my age didn't go to the West End. We went to the National Theatre or the Almeida or places like that. You didn't go to the West End. Um, A new generation of producers, directors, writers, was given the opportunity of going straight into the West End with some pretty challenging plays. And I could talk more about it if you want, uh, but probably we should dwell on it much more. But over time, we turned the theatres around and then Curzon Cinemas, Curzon uh, West End, as it was then called, I turned into the Curzon Soho. It's still there today from a big, big monolithic screen into three screens. It was one of the first art house multiplexes in the UK. And lo and behold, we managed with a great team of of managers to turn that group into a a profitable entertainment uh, group, sold it off uh, at a profit to the shareholders, and literally, in the period that we did that, Quintain took over Chesterfield Properties. Uh, So, job done. But I then had lost one of the greatest jobs I had ever uh, had, and that was a career crisis moment for me because... um, you know, I, I, I loved that job. And the funny thing about media and entertainment in the UK is there are not actually that many jobs, top jobs. So I wasn't going to be made Director General of the BBC because I wasn't a BBC lifer. Uh, I had a sort of dalliance with, could I get myself into Channel 4 at a right level? But it looked to be quite a closed shop the TV sector. And you should never forget that about the UK. You know, unlike America, you do well in a particular sector... In America, you have a chance of pivoting into other sectors because you've done well. Here, we're much more vertical in our approach to everything. And so climbing out of one vertical and moving into another career-wise is, is not that easy. The fact that I've done it now three or four times and moved from investment banking to entertainment into property
0: is an unusual thing to, to have been able to do. I, I agree. It's extremely unusual. What do you think may, allowed you to do that? What What made you unique? Well... I think that if I now look back upon the creation of, of Pocket,
1: all the bits that I went through make complete sense to me in terms of the eventual output, which is Pocket. Banking taught me how to work with large sums of money. The entertainment industries taught me how to work between very creative people and Financial and administrative people, and to respect both camps, you can't be a good film producer, impresario, runner of theaters unless you have huge amounts of respect for both camps and you know pocket embodies much of all of that learning, so in a sense, pocket was the answer to a rather dysfunctional career, bringing it all together There's an amusing story which we can talk about later about how i how I actually came up with pocket uh, at the breakfast table one day. I think I've been lucky. I think I'm persistent. I like solving problems. I've got a low boredom threshold. So if something doesn't challenge me, then I know it's time to move on. And this has been plenty challenging for the last 15 years. So it's kept me properly focused. But maybe it's back to the point I was making earlier in this interview. I, I just don't really believe in these verticals. I think the best people have the capacity and the interest to look over the... Garden fences that they're meant to be sitting between, and go. Hey, I I prefer that garden. I'm going to leap leap in that. What I always encourage people in my company is: don't just be a really good development manager, or don't just be a very good salesperson, or a great marketing person. Point out to the people in the garden next door what they have to do to make you the very best that you can be. And if they don't do their job properly, you can't do your job. So don't be too respectful of these verticals and. I think that makes me more able to move around and to apply ultimately the thing that probably makes me tick more than anything else, which is to look at conventional problems through a new pair of goggles. I'll give you a lovely story uh, in relation to the theatre industry, just as, a, as, a, as an example. That the first day that I went in there, the manager of the Albury Theatre, it was then called, showed me around and gave me a demonstration of various bits and pieces in the theatre, including the safety curtain, which he uh, pulled up and pulled down, and, and I said, well, why do you have a safety curtain? He said, well, it's because of fire risk. And I said, oh, really? What kind of fire risk? So said, oh, you know, um, you need something to protect the audience from, from the actors. And I said, well, that's kind of understand, but what's the fire risk? He said, well, you know, when you have gas lights, then uh, it really is a really big Big risk, these gas lights. And I I went, okay. when did this theatre become electrified? He said, well, probably back in the 1950s, 40s. I said, right, okay. so you haven't had gas lights for a long time. Why do you still have safety curtains? He said, because, Mark, we've always done it that way. And that would be the kind of industry I'd like working in. So I then looked at those safety curtains and thought, well, that great advertising opportunity they are. So I did a deal with Vodafone. And they stamped on all our safety curtains a very big Vodafone badge and said sometimes Vodafone would rather you switched off, and it was the first time anybody had managed to get any sponsorship in the theatre. So I think I'm I'm genuinely always intrigued by looking at fairly conservative,
0: complex, defensive industries and seeing how do you how, how do you change that? To give us a bit of a bit of context, when when you you came to that career dilemma at the end of end of the, the theater company, how old were you at that time? So I must have been in my in my latest thirties okay yeah, So two careers, yeah, two decades, yeah. What 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 had driven you to that that point? What what do you think was was uh, uh, was was in your gut? What what was it that was that was giving you that drive? Well, it's it's very interesting to
1: to to reflect back on that, of course, because the age of entrepreneurship now is so much younger. You know, lots of people are being entrepreneurs in their uh, twenties, and so you're right. Late thirties is 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 relatively late to become an entrepreneur. I think two or three things made me want to be my own to be an entrepreneur, first of all, to be my own boss. I think there comes a point in your life where you just have to recognise that you're not great at reporting up and that you need to be in charge of your own destiny. And I think that's a very strong motif with all the entrepreneurs that that, I chair a Venture Capital Fund or Venture Capital Trust. uh, And so I come across a lot of entrepreneurs that we invest in as a VCT. And I would say to a man and woman, they're just not very good at reporting to anybody. So they've got to set up their own business. So I think that's a big uh, uh, motive for them. I think the second motive for setting up your own business is oddly enough, you know, people think you're doing it to become rich uh, most people that I know who set up their own business are emphatically not doing it to become rich. They set it up for lifestyle reasons. It's not just that they can't really report up to anybody. It's because they want the flexibility. They want to be their own bosses. They want to decide how they work, with whom they work, when they come to work. So I think lifestyle is a really important part of of, of, of the journey.
0: Was that true for you?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, You know, when you're running a, a wonderful business... It happens to be quoted on the London stock market stock stock exchange and and your boss tells you you know in all fairness it was my job you know make this ready for takeover uh, and all of a sudden you're in that process where you you become the plaything of the markets and you you're no longer in control at all you may be the managing director or the chief executive but essentially the markets are deciding what's going to happen to your fate and I really hated that. I, I I hated the experience of having to think about analysts and brokers who, frankly, you know, that particular sector didn't actually really know anything about what 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 entertainment assets were like and what we were doing with them, but they were just determining our fate. So, I think that the quest to run your own business is is guided much by lifestyle and the experience of losing control within the conventional corporate uh, world that you might have been in or or not getting to the levels of control that you want to get to and and then i think there's a third thing and this is almost the hardest to define but you should always look for it in a successful entrepreneur is that they need to come I- up, up with an idea which stretches the imagination but not so far that it Breaks the imagination, not so far that you that it becomes incredulous. They need to be able to stretch your imagination far enough that you think it would be really exciting if that could succeed. As it's going to be complex, it's going to be difficult. It may not work, but I can imagine it working. And we'll talk about this in a minute. But when I sat down with my career crisis, trying to work out what the hell I was going to do given that I wasn't going to be made director general of the BBC, given that I wasn't in America where a car might roll up and ask me to go and run a part of Warner Studios, you know, given that I really had to go reinvent myself, looking at a way of applying everything I'd learned to an area which needed innovation, but where it wasn't a question of going up to people saying, it's all terrible
0: and wrong, let's start from scratch. That, that seemed like quite an interesting challenge. Well, we talk about challenge, didn't we? Given those, given those two industries, you'd had uh, a great deal of success in, in both of those now. What on earth made you think you could go into another industry and solve what has been a generational problem for the housing market? Um,
1: I, I was not so immodest to think that I could solve the, the problem that we're working at. And today I would still say to everybody who works in my company... You know, just do understand that the average housing director, planning director, has a lot more responsibility for people in social housing need, for instance, than are millennials who want to try and get on the housing ladder. And we are only a bit part solution to the huge, overwhelming, frankly, housing needs of a world city like London. But the reason why I was driven to towards this market was... Well, I'll have to explain about the kitchen table moment. This is the anecdote you promised us. So this was the anecdote I promised you. I I literally sat down with a very, very large piece of paper. I think it was an A3 piece of paper. And I I, I drew out on, on, on the left all the things that I hated doing and therefore presumably that I was reasonably crap at. And at the bottom axis, on the bottom axis, I wrote down all the things that I loved doing and therefore hopefully wasn't too bad at. And... I would commend this to anybody, you know, having a midlife career crisis, because actually if you do that process honestly, then what came out of that were some things we were talking about earlier. There was no point in me setting up a corner shop uh, selling, you know, sweets for pennies. I, I had to deal with something which consumed large amounts of money. Dealing with large amounts of money, which, which you learn as a banker, but also in the entertainment industries, gives you a certain confidence that is worth having. And you don't want to lose that. I think to that extent, David Putnam was right. Uh, I'm still the banker at some level. You know, I'm, I understand that language. So it had to consume fairly large amounts of capital. The second thing was uh, that it needed to Deal with the built environment. I'd spent a lot of time thinking about London, you know. Walk walking around London with these cinemas, with these theatres, and the, it struck me that London was in a bit of a mess and that these local authorities weren't talking to each other properly. You know, these were the early days of the GLA. And so I was thinking about something which had something to do with building. And, you know, I had done a fair amount of building works within uh, the, the, the company that I'd run. I'd also built my own house, which, which may be relevant to all of this. My mother used to joke, she's a very Dutch lady, that I was born with a brick in my stomach, um, which must be a Dutch expression. And... And then I think the third thing that 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 drove me w- was on the back of a conversation I'd had with a bunch of managers in our in our businesses, we employed about four, five hundred people, and they said, "Look, we love doing these jobs, you know, lighting these theaters, uh, running these f- f- you know divisions in film studios. But the fact of the matter is, mark, that our 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 sons and daughters are all sitting at home playing with their Nintendos, and they are not going to make the journey an hour and a half, two hour commutes into central London to work for modestly you know low to modest salaries. They they won't feel that love, they won't feel that passion. And London will just price them out. It just become, become becomes unaffordable. And we were already then having real problems with staffing some of these places. Uh you know, we could keep the old folk because they'd done it all their lives. They but but getting young people to join these 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 industries was really, really hard. So one of the things that was on my sheet of paper was an emerging idea around well what do we do about these young people and how how do we house them and literally there was this one moment where it all came together for me and I thought well, actually if i could set up a housing company that somehow successfully created housing that was affordable to that group without without subsidy so i i I imposed a whole bunch of constraints upon myself from day one you know it couldn't be subsidized couldn't be social housing couldn't be what everybody else was doing uh had to be uh compact. I was pretty clear about that from day one because you know nobody could afford the planning compliant five hundred square foot one bedroom flat it was too expensive so i i I thought well if I could set up a company that could do that that would be amazing that would be wonderful and and i'm I'm absolutely sure that i could I could make lots of people. Uh, very happy with that. I think there's one other aspect to this which might be worth just raising. Is I am, of course, an immigrant, and I may not sound like one, but I am. Um, when I came to this country, I'd lived here as a child between the age of two and six, which is why I sound English. But but literally, I'd been out of the country, you know, from six to eighteen, educated in Dutch. Uh, it was only because I came to university to the UK that I reconnected with the UK. But I had no depth of friendship. Uh, uh, in the UK. I certainly had no family. Now, what is it that most immigrants want to do as soon as they possibly can To get on the housing ladder? Put down roots. Put down roots, own their own place. That's their republic. So this visceral desire to get your own place was very strong in me. And I sometimes joke that one of the reasons why I became an investment banker was it was the fastest route to a cheap mortgage. And indeed, I did own my first home when I was precociously young. I think I was 24 years old. So... Anyway, I sat there at the kitchen table, wrote all these things down, and literally out of all of this stuff... oh, I mean, There's one other thing. was I'd, I'd studied a lot of politics. I did my bachelor's in politics and, and economics and did my master's in international relations. I'd never really worked with politics. I thought something political might be quite interesting. Um, I'd actually advised various MPs in the Labour Party. That was quite interesting whilst I was working as a banker... Uh, And I think I was at one of the early meetings of Gordon Brown with people in the city way before there was any chance of a Labour government ever ever forming. So that was that was really curious. So I was quite politically engaged. And um, out of of this exercise came pocket. I didn't call it pocket. And then the journey from there is quite interesting as well. So this is what what year are we in now? So we're now in. Well, after the theatre and cinema business, I did have a dalliance with a, a entertainment information and ticketing business, which was called First Call. And we were going to turn that into the lastminute.com of, of, of the century uh, with a man called Keith Mills, uh, who went went on to run the Olympic bid. And I liked Keith. But between the two of us, we, we, we'd bitten off more than we could chew with that business. And it didn't really quite work out, which was a shame. And it was a very interesting example, actually, where... You know, the internet revolution was happening. It was 2000, 2001. On paper, you know, having the largest ticketing company in the UK and wanting to migrate that online should have been a huge success. But the new kids on the block, like lastminute.com, were unencumbered by telephone rooms, unencumbered by legacy systems, unencumbered by huge amounts of staff... They just had a great marketing story which the venture capitalists have bought into. And interestingly, I remember joining with Keith, end of 99, early 2000, lots of VCs wanted to talk to us about this legacy business, as they used to call it, uh, called First Call, and how were we going to turn that into this newfangled internet company. And literally from the crisis in the internet market, um, March, April 2000, from one week to the next, nobody would pick up our calls anymore. And I did learn from that how difficult it is to migrate, if you want to call it a legacy business, but an existing business into a new, presumably digital arena. Very, very hard to do. So by the time that was finished with 2002, I then had a go with some friends looking to buy up television production companies. I went back to that and former chief operating officer of BBC and I and uh, another TV producer looked to raise money to consolidate british television production but there were others doing that who had more credibility than we had so that didn't work and then in 2004 sat down with my big piece of paper i did in between all this always maintain consultancy work and i would advise everybody who wants to set up their own business to do that it's what an actor friend of mine once called packing eggs on sunday i i i remember asking her what do you do she said i'm an actor and then halfway through the conversation, it turned out that she hadn't been an actress for very much of her life because she was mostly doing these odd jobs, like packing eggs on Sunday. <laughs> but, of course, she thought of herself completely as, as, as an actress. And I think, I think by the time I set up Pocket with Paul Harbart, I was still packing eggs on Sunday. I was doing bits and pieces of consulting work just to earn some money. So, yeah, then, then came the pocket phase of my life. And that was that was a whole series of accidents waiting to happen. Quite fun.
0: So here comes someone with a fresh idea of yeah. how to provide homes in, in central London for the people who make London tick. So the property establishment must have opened their arms with glee, mustn't they? Well, I mean, first of all, let, let's take one step back. The, the reason why... I ended
1: up doing it. It was not just because I had this idea, but also because Paul Harbard, who I knew from nowhere, had never met in my life, had exactly the same idea. And we were put together by a friend of ours who sat on on the same board as I did, uh, this Venture Capital Trust, and said, Flessing, you, know, you don't know what you're talking about. Go and talk to this man, Harbard. He actually knows something about it. He was finance director of Peabody Trust. And he'd given up being finance. He's 10 years older than me, um, doing that gig in order to set up his own business which he he uh, alarmingly had called S1 Homes, Studios and One-Bedroom Homes. And we eventually decided that we would try and do all of this together. I said, you have to understand, I cannot work in a company that's called S1 Homes. It's the, it's the, it's, I, I don't even want to tell you what I think it is in terms of brand
0: equivalence, but it's pretty bad. Well, apart from being a Sheffield postcode as well.
1: Yeah, uh, quite. So, um, so we were very lucky that I, I knew a, a, a bunch of people who used to work for one of the great branding companies, Wolf Owners, and they'd set up their own business called Venture 3. And we knocked on their door with this idea, which by now was half-formed. And they said, great, we'll put one of our brains on it. And they put a man called Stuart Jane on it, who brilliantly came up with the name Pocket. But back to your question about the property industry. So we really didn't know. We knew what the problem was that we wanted to solve. We had no clue how to solve it. So Paul is a very good mathematician. I'm quite rational sort of structured thinker. So we were just iterating away, trying to find various ways of coming up with a formula that could solve the problem that we'd set. And the problem we set was, how do you render a home 20% more affordable to the starter market? And our calculations showed that if you could bring that price point of an average first-time buyer's home down by 20%, you could price something like four times more people into home ownership. So today, only 12% of first-time buyers can afford to buy without help from their parents and the state. Um, If you go the pocket model, you can increase that to about 50% of the available pool. And the the pool that we're talking about is the 20 plus to 30 plus year olds that work and are economically active in London today, of which are about 1.5 million.
0: So on the face of it, pocket sounds like a social enterprise, doesn't it? But is that Breaking into that new market—that's that's the the commercial secret, isn't it, pocket? Yeah. So the commercial secret, I guess, was to
1: ask a question that nobody was asking themselves. You know, somebody once said about one of the greatest ice hockey players that it, this was not the ice the ice hockey player that was the greatest ice it was not the guy who got to the puck first, but got to where the puck was going to be. And I think that's what happened with Pocket. We were asking a question ahead of it becoming clear to the rest of the market that this was an unresolved area. Now, there's some very good political historical reasons why the middle market in the UK was unattended. Okay, So the first one is that we always have had this obsession about open market housing, uh, which people bore each other to tears over Sunday roast about their housing equity kind of thing, and then very state-centric, very managed social housing and actually, those pillars have, have run the housing market fairly successfully over the last 40, 50 years. The, the the people in the middle were always assumed to buy, you know, a broomstick carpet in West Kensal and then trade that for a small one-bedroom in Shepherd's Bush and then trade that five years later for a two-bedroom in Putney and eventually by the time they were 35 they would have probably bought and sold four or five properties and they'd have you know a, a loan to value of, of 60% with some equity and that would be them and their property journey done. Sounds familiar? Well, that, that's what most of us have had to do, except if you can't get your foot on the first rung of the housing ladder, then you can't do that equity trading up, and you're, you're priced out, you're stuck. So the commercial reality was this is a vast market of people who can't get their, they're doing decent jobs, they're working incredibly hard, uh, they're not eligible for social housing, they they are living with their parents, with their friends. Average age, by the way, of a pocket buyer, 32. I mean, it's, we're into the area of this being an injustice, almost, that they, and, and although we are a for sale model, Really, it doesn't make any difference whether you're talking about the renting market or the for sale market. They're both overpriced and they're not in, available in the quantities and at the qualities required for these hardworking Londoners. And so the commercial gap in the market was very clear. The question was, how could you address it? How, what did you have to do to come up with a new market model to address that, that gap? And we, that's what we probably should talk talk about next. But before I do so... I just want to say something about the property industry because although it is in some respects a very conservative industry and it's done its thing, you know, we've been building in a particular way and thinking about housing for in a particular way for a very long time in this country and we're des- desperately ripe now for innovation, planning and construction and finance and all kinds of innovations within housing. I have never worked in a more welcoming industry and I've worked in quite a few The chief executives and and heads of and and managers within the development companies, housing associations, large volume house builders, commercial businesses that I've been lucky enough to get to know and work with have, to a man and woman, always been curious, interested and intrigued to see us succeed. And there's been no cynicism about that. I think they've all felt this was a worthwhile thing and a worthwhile experiment. And you could, be, you could be cynical about that and say, well, at some level, they're heat-seeking missiles. You know, they want to see whether if you're successful, they go, oh, yeah, I, I made that possible. I was the guy who told them how to do that and that and that. But honestly, it was more genuine than that. So I think, I think it is an industry, if you want to innovate within the housing and development industry, there will be only too many people who want to see you succeed. Because I think we all know that it's an industry that, that really
0: needs to see more innovation. Well, you've been very kind about property, but how kind was property to you when you were starting out Pocket? There were an awful lot
1: of uh, financiers who, I would say, stripped us down to the last thread and shred of information and, uh, and then turned around and said, we're not going to do this. Thank you very much. Th- there were quite a few who didn't feel that they could make that leap. But then thankfully, we did find our one guy, a terrific guy called Michael Landers, who was running the property arm of the venture capital division of Cargill, the world's largest food wholesaler and soya and grain trading business, I mean, just vast business, which kicks off a huge amount of cash every year, uh, but on very small margins. But because they're such a predictable generator of cash, they rightly wanted to have their own venture capital business that would then put that predictable cash into slightly more racy areas and you know this guy was was investing in innovation in the development sectors across Europe and he thought this was a really interesting idea so he gave us our first six million and off we went.
0: Off, off you went there's 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 some some stumbling blocks here isn't there you've got you've got your finance you've got your you've got your concept. How much? How much backing did you have from the local authorities and the planners? Well, actually, we didn't. We, we didn't get the money until we got the concept. And getting to the concept was
1: hilarious, and it really worked from first principles. So the starting point was a five hundred square foot, planning compliant, one bedroom home is unaffordable. There's no point in looking at two and three bedroom homes because that's not where the starter market is. So it's a one bedroom home. Um, How small can you make it before it becomes dysfunctional and you don't want to be there? So there were all kinds of space standards that we imposed upon ourselves, but we knew we had to shrink the floor plate. So eventually we'd shrunk it to 400 square foot and we'd come up with a design helped by a whole bunch of people, uh, including uh, my Dutch friends at the National Architectural Institute in Rotterdam, who explained all you know, all manner of principles about large fenestration to maximise daylight, and uh, putting the front door in the middle of the unit, unit, so you had the smallest amount of circulation space to get to the third door, and think like a boat builder and create lots of uh, storage and. What I'm really proud of in, in, in the pocket one bedroom flat is that there are two versions of it and they are still the same two versions today, 15 years later. It's like creating the Volkswagen Beetle. It was it was just that dead right for its market that we've never had to change the fundamental layouts of these flats and we did research them to death. But although we ended up with this unit at 400 rather than 500 square foot, which clearly is 20% smaller in terms of square footage, That didn't make it 20% cheaper. And as I said earlier, we had to get to this 20% discount. It wasn't 20% cheaper because, of course, we had many more bathrooms and uh, kitchens and corridors to build, and our net to gross was not as efficient as it should be. So we had to find another bit to make it 20% cheaper. So I would say that shrinking the floor plate made it 10% below the market, to a one bedroom flat in the local area new built one bedroom flat which presumably was bigger but but you know you can't you can't make something cheaper and pay the same square footage price for it you know it has to come out of something else and so the something else was a whole bunch of costs which we worked out the average developer has to meet on these you know small infill sites car parking balconies two and three bedroom flats mix The margin on a two-bedroom and a three-bedroom flat is much lower than a one-bedroom flat. So we had to get to a high density of compact one-bedroom flats to make this thing stack. Um, And then there was this wonderful moment where I was cycling through Camden, trying to find our first site. We hadn't got any money yet, but we were were getting closer to it. We had a planning consultant who was advising us. And I just noted on that one journey three or four developments that had gone up and they had their A-frames on and they were marketing 14 two-bedroom flats and 14 three-bedroom flats and 14 one, two and three-bedroom flats. It was always 14. So I went back to him I said, John, why, 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 what's this obsession with 14? And I remember him taking, he was an elderly gentleman, he said, took his glasses off and he said, Mark, you really don't know anything about development, do you? I said, no, I don't. He said, do you know what a Section 106 agreement is? I said, sounds awful, what is it? <laughs> so he said, well, it's a, it's a way of negotiating planning gain. And, you know, if you're doing Terminal 5, then the planning gain is, you know, a fire station and roundabout, some car parking. But if you're doing housing, the planning gain that the local authority will extract from you in their 106 negotiation will be affordable housing. Now, the rule is that if you're doing a bathroom extension, we're not going to force you into a 106. And if you're doing King's Cross, we're jolly well going to make sure that you pay your pound of flesh in terms of affordable housing. But where do you, where's the cutoff? And so the rule in London and the UK more generally is that if it's a development of 15 or more units, you have to enter into 106. And if it's below that, you don't. So that's why there is a compelling logic for developers to build 14 oversized this and that in order to stay away from having to put any social housing into their developments. And that was my Archimedes moment, you know, the, the, the soap falling in the bathtub. And I went, that's it. We're going to buy all these small sites across London on which that nasty developer over there would commit, and I came up with this emotive language, threshold abuse. And I'd go up to directors of planning and housing and say, I've bought this small infill site, on which you're not going to get any affordable housing because they're going to commit threshold abuse. But if you work with a nice pocket, you'll get 100% pocket homes. And they go, what is that? And they say, well, it's 20% cheaper than the market. and And then actually the best of them started to help us. And they said, well, okay, you need an income eligibility. You need to prioritise people who live and work in our borough and you need to make sure that when they resell these homes, they resell it to somebody who is also eligible because you don't want this to leak in the open market and become just, you know, a buy-to-rent product for rich business people. So we work with some really great directors of planning and housing to come up with this construct of a compact one-bedroom home at a 20% discount that was going to be prioritised for people who live or work in the borough on a certain household income. And then the other bit of luck was that the GLA, Ken Livingstone, came up with this definition. Uh, He said, well, we've got to come up with some kind of income definition of who's eligible for affordable housing. Uh, And it was his innovation within the London plan to say, if you have a household income below a certain level, you are eligible to get social housing, shared ownership, or a pocket home, whatever it is that is right for you. And if you're above that, then don't knock on the door of these providers. So that's how it all started.
0: Okay. You mentioned about sort of after these these two successful uh, stints in different industries that you you weren't going to go back, you weren't going to start dealing in uh, in small change. How long was it until you, you started to see the larger revenues coming through from pocket?
1: It took a long time. So you needed grit, and there were some really, really sad and difficult moments along the way. So the first three schemes that we got funded with Cargill's money were all rejected at planning committee, despite the fact that they were all written up with officers' recommendations for approval. What we'd understood early on was that you needed to get the enthusiasm of officers. You know, we were a grassroots-up company. We weren't going to laud it over anybody, fly in with deputy prime minister and tell them, you know, here's this lovely new idea, and there were some competitors of ours who had a habit of doing that know uh, new new enterprises trying to come come in from on high as it were and no we we thought we had to work with with officers grassroots up and and it was devastating you know to to get all three of them rejected at committee it was too rich for their blood you know i used to joke that if you had a planning committee in front of you which the average age was 55 you might as well give up because the plight of this market you know millennials whatever you want to call them starters people who can't get their foot on the housing ladder was was not going to be served served by people in their late 50s who already had lots of housing equity and if they were on the right they thought that having a four by four on the driveway was a was a birthright and and if they were on the left they they would think that all affordable housing had to be, be provided by our housing associations and how could you claim to be a affordable housing provider if you were a private company so our argument around planning broke down more on age grounds actually and if we had a youngish planning committee then we were more in luck but so we weren't lucky with the first three cases but we were very lucky in this respect that the planning inspectorate and I, I I've got to know Nick Rainsford very well he was housing minister he's he's, he's never told me what lay behind this and maybe just be just great good luck i'd like to think somebody put two and two together the planning inspector started to look at these three rejections as a whole because we appealed every one of them and we won every one of them and when they did their reports they said different things in relation to each other so it held together these three appeal wins made us pretty much you know pantser clad against successive local authorities trying to turn us down. So we say, oh, we've got an answer for that. You know, we don't have to build car parking. Oh, we've got an answer about that mix. Oh, We're going to... That's, that's fine. That planning inspector said it was fine. So, what's great about the British planning system? I mean, everybody complains about planning in the UK. It's it's, it's meant to be plan-led, but we all know it's, it's, it's not really that plan-led, because uh, it does depend on a certain amount of theatre and performance on the night at planning committee. You can get planning policy to change through an example and so by doing our first two or three schemes and actually selling them well, despite the 2007-2008 crash, which we had to trade through with this company, I think officers could see that we meant what we said, that, you know, what, what we said it was going to do and be, it really was, and that we were ruthless and efficient in our management of the whole eligibility or, or who could buy and, and how, how these homes got resold so that they remained affordable. And I think that that gained a lot of respect, ultimately. So it was tough. It was difficult. Certainly, it was quite small for a very long time. We were in the business at that stage of creating what I would call a genetically modified mouse that had to be strain-resistant in the laboratory. But we then had our three mice that got planning and happy, happy consumers. And I remember a property developer who... It was sort of tut- tutting me, saying, "Mark, you're 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 mad. You know, you're buying all these infill sites, but really, development is an opportunistic build- business. And sometimes you're much better at building a, 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 a hotel on a site, or uh, student housing, or um, social housing, or you know, whatever gets you the best possible return. That's that's how you should think about development." And I, and I said, "No, I'm a concept-driven developer. I I have a concept, and I might not make as much money on that site, but if I if I undermine my concept." then planners won't take me seriously. So I have to logically and rigorously stick to what I'm doing. So it's going to be a 100% pocket and it's going to be this compact flat and it's going to be priced at a discount, which is verified in the following way, and sold to these kind of people. I'm going to do that again and again and again
0: until, until they believe me. Well, I mean, that's that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because for someone who, who's shown such chameleon-esque talents early in their career, that's suddenly quite a, a, a rigid approach. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's an interesting point. I mean, there, there, there was a very nice guy who, who sort of gave me some advice uh, early on in the setting of Pocket, and he, he, made, he kind of made that point to me. He said, are you going to stick with this? Because this is, a, this is going to be a hard, hard slog. Robert Lawrence was his name. Uh, I do think I, I, I learned from people like him from the outset that if this was going to succeed, it was going to succeed because I was going to stick to it. And maybe at some level I wanted to punish myself a bit. I'd had all this fun, you know, jumping around and doing all these different things, and this was going to be my baptism. This was going to show me that I could stick to something and really
0: make it work. And so, had you a bit of sort of self reflection had had your drive? We asked you about grit earlier. Has, are, we, are we now in a, a different type of drive, a different chapter in your in your life that, that made you do so? I don't think anything has. I mean,
1: you know, to be a film producer, you have to be very driven and you have to have a lot of grit. Uh, after all, you have to wake up every morning standing in front of the mirror saying that this incredible script that nobody wants to finance is the best film that's never been made. And you have to say that until eventually somebody says, you know, here's the money, you can now bugger off and make it. So you need that persistence. I couldn't do it in film, interestingly, again and again. I, I, I just didn't have the motivation to keep doing that. Um, this is different. I... I passionately care about cities. I genuinely don't see how a world city can survive unless people on modest incomes can survive. Ed Glazer, whose book Triumph of the City is a must read for anybody in development, it's short, it's powerful, it's punchy, makes the rather provocative point that great cities attract poor people. Um, And of course, that's taking it to extremes but there's no doubt that if you're in the countryside and you know you're looking at industrial agriculture and there's no work for you anymore in the fields where are you going to go you know you're going to go to a city and that's the migration we've seen five years ago six years ago the world population went into a majority occupation of cities rather than the countryside for the first time that's just going to go up and up and up we'll be at 60 percent before we know it and the reason why they come to cities is because the old advantages of cities. You can meet people quickly. The distances are short. Cities are very specialised. You can find your gig and find depth in that which is your gig and find kindred spirits. And that allows you to get professional satisfaction but, as importantly, feed your family. Now, a city that doesn't attract people to do that anymore, because it's priced them out comprehensively, will atrophy and die. I mean, Rome collapsed because it became unlivable and unmanageable to, to be in Rome. So we we allow a world city like London to forget about the middle market at, at our peril. And whilst I am very passionate about the need for us to maintain social housing at genuine discounts and in the right quantities for people who really need them because I think that's what a civilized society should do and that's what cities need as well. If the debate just becomes a social housing versus open market sort of Victorian capitalism debate, then we when we then we will fail. So I think what fueled the passion as much as anything else was back to that story about the theatre manager telling me who's going to work in these theatres. know, uh, A state school head telling me that the average tenure of her teachers in her secondary school was 18 months, and the number one reason they cited for leaving was housing-related. I didn't want my child to have a new teacher every 18 months. A very senior surgeon who once said to me, you know, if you need this particular operation, don't have it in central London because they can't keep the, the, the corridors clean enough. Go and do it in a less good hospital out in the sticks because at least it'll be clean. You know, these are genuine challenges that a city has. So to be able to come up with an idea that helps that is, is a great privilege. And by the way, what propels me on, is not just that we've grown the business from nothing to four or 500 homes a year. We've got a pipeline. We're about to build our thousands home. You know, we're turning over 100 million pounds. There are 50 people working in it. We're going to hopefully set up our own modular factory. We're going to go into the regions. We've got big aspirations to go into two-bedroom homes as well. But what propels me on as much as anything else is the letters and the phone calls that we get from really thrilled people who say, thank you so much for fulfilling a dream. I never thought I'd be treated like a grown-up, and here I am in my own home. I've got my own keys. That's astonishing, and that's not something making a film can replicate, because you're going to ask me at some stage, do I miss the film industry and the theatre industry and all of that? And this this is the thrill that really keeps me going.
0: I think that comes back to your point about putting down roots, isn't it? I think people join real estate because there is something tangible there. There is there is something you can touch, feel and you can really experience the same what you know what influence you're playing and and obviously you're playing a huge influence to those those thousand buyers. I think that's 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 true for a lot of people
1: um who join real estate. I think that what, what what's fascinating about real estate is I mean, certainly the way we do it at Pocket, and it's driven by the concept that we've got, we we are dancing on a pinhead, trying to hold in a tightly knit choreography policy and politics on the one hand, wholesale and retail finance on the other, and demographic shift and design as a third. Now... At any point in time, there was somebody in an architectural firm over the last 30 years saying, if I make a flat more compact and I design it this way and that way and that way, for this demographic I can make it more affordable. And that's great, but that's not enough. And at any point in time, there's always an investment banker coming up with you know, some financial engineering. And, you know, if I come up with this kind of capital structure and I, you know, buy dollars and swap them for sterling, I can get a cost of finance that allows me to make something more affordable. That's great, but that's not enough either. And most points in time, there's a politician or a policymaker who goes, if I change the planning system this way or that way, I can engender a whole new creation of, you know, housing that will hopefully sort this problem out once and for all. And that's very, very important. But even that's not enough. So if you do too much of the architecture, you're a frustrated architect. And if you do too much of the policy stuff, you become sort of frustrated think tank and if you do too much of the financial engineering you're a rapacious capitalist so what makes it fascinating to me to be in development is that you have to hold those three together and what i found really fascinating about the best developers can with credibility stand in front of a very diverse group of people and talk about their development and listen properly to what they're getting as feedback from that very diverse group of people and show no side and not come out like some rich, privileged person who's just wanting to plonk a building down in your street. The best developers know how to do that. Um, And the ones that are wheeled out by the system fail at that because you can see them coming. So I think that there is a social, political, economic marriage of, of, of competences that you need to have to be a good developer. And... I don't know many industries in which you can find that mix. That's a heady mix. We sometimes say it's about the built thing that you leave behind, you know, your grandchildren can look at it. But I think that's less important than the intellectual and, you know, day-to-day challenge of holding those three things together.
0: Okay, Mark, I want to get to two points now, if you can. I want to be able to take your experience and be able to distill that and give this to people who are either, one, looking to start a company or, second, maybe this is someone who has ambitions to stand out from the crowd whilst they're working within a larger organisation. So, first of all, have an idea
1: that is fresh, but not so exotic that people won't be able to relate to it. Secondly, never underestimate how much goodwill and time more experienced people will give you to test your ideas and thinking. You know, share it. Don't be afraid of sharing it. Thirdly, don't do it on your own. Make sure that you've got a partner. From day one, the best businesses I've come across, because it's a lonely business. Fourthly, make sure that you've got a partner at home who's going to be thoroughly supportive because if he she is not, then that's a real problem. And uh, I think most entrepreneurs don't give enough thought to the the household impact of being an entrepreneur. Fifthly, and it's, it's a bit in relation to the first point I was making, you're there to stretch rules, you're not there to break them. But that does mean that you have to understand the rules extremely well. This is a regulated marketplace. Development is 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 you know there's there's planning policy, there's finance, you know there's there's a lot of rules out there, and you can't hope to get to the top of the pile with your new idea unless you understand how, how how they interplay. And then sixthly, just be prepared to get going and don't wait for the ideal moment. There's never an ideal moment, and nobody's going to give you all the money you need to do it the right way. So there's always going to be a compromise at the beginning of what you do. Seventhly, be modest. Be be determined, but be modest. Um, I think people find the people that work at Pocket forthright and annoyingly, yeah, annoyingly forthright about what we do. But I'd like to think they don't find us arrogant. I'd like to think that they've that they know we're on a mission, but that we know where our place is in in that mission. Uh, So try not to piss off people too much along the way. And stick at it. You know, it took the student housing industry five to ten years for planning policy to adapt around what they were doing and therefore make it more possible. And they're still not there. There's still aspects of planning policy which get in the way of student housing really, you know, being even more successful. Retirement housing and other, if you want, concept-driven development Mm uh took a long time for for their planning policy framework to to congeal around what they needed and i'd say with pocket you know the jury's out i i think government is 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 on its way to create a better regulatory framework for us to be more successful in more widely and get out of london with it but boy that's been hard fought and uh, i i'm i'm looking forward to working closely with this government to get that planning policy framework to the point at which frankly, I mean, you haven't asked the question, but I'll I'll ask it for you. Why is there no competition to pocket? There should be. We're making good money from this business and having great careers out of it. We're not making huge amounts of money from it. I don't think you should make huge amounts of money when you have little to no sales risk. So our margins are quite tight, but we're making a good return from this business. Uh, uh, Why are there not more uh, competitors? Why is there no competition? Because it's too hard. And um, so I do think, Government needs to learn from why it is so hard and uh, take some of those barriers away so that we can see, see, see more competition uh, and build a bigger market for the starter sec, sec, segment of this country.
0: Okay, thank you. The, the final question I want to I ask is uh, around success. So the reason why, why I was so keen for us to sit down was that I consider you a very successful person. But has your concept of success, has that changed over the, your career?
1: No, emphatically not. You know, I, I, I think f- my entire life has worked on the same principle and today is no different, which is that I hold no distinction between the play, the work, and to some degree the private and the public, but certainly the play and the work. To me... I don't know when i'm playing and when i'm working sometimes i play my saxophone sometimes i run pocket sometimes i do other things and so for me if you want to define success it's about having a balanced diet of things that fascinate me in my work life in my private life in my playing life such that they all become indistinguishable and I derive huge amounts of inspiration and satisfaction from the fact that I am a very active musician, um, the fact that I've got a very hard working wife, that I've got two wonderful children, and you know, I don't want to get soppy about this, but but actually all of that is as much part of me and my success. And if Pocket had not been a success, that would have been very sad, but I dare say something else would
0: have been. Brilliant. Well, Mark, thank you so much for giving us this, uh, this time. I I've, I've found that fascinating. I've, I have no doubt our, our audience will really enjoy listening, listening to this. Thank
1: you very much for your time.
0: This podcast was brought to you by McDonald & Company, the leading real estate recruiter. To discuss any matters with Nick Carmen, please contact him via the email address in your show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episode as it's released.